And some days after Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The word of God. If I do not know you, my name is Ryan Vincent, and it is my joy and my privilege to serve on our adult ministry team here at Sunny River Christian Church. And uh, Jim is actually in Mexico right now with his wife, visiting uh, their son, Matt, encouraging him and his ministry down there. And so uh, it's also my joy, my privilege to work through this rather short but sometimes confusing passage. And this passage is, we need to handle it with care because there's no clear instructions that it offers for us. It doesn't tell you and I to do anything. It lays out no overarching universal principles for believers for all time, at least not explicitly. It just describes what happened. Describes a little exchange between Paul and Barnabas as Paul's setting out on his, what would become his second missionary journey. And, and we have, uh, it's at first glance, something of a falling out. What do we do with the apparent differences in personality between two very good evangelists like Paul and Barnabas? Paul has this reputation for being kind of hard-headed, kind of stubborn, direct to the point. He's very zealous, and uh, he's kind of this alpha leader. Barnabas has a little bit of a different reputation. He's known as the son of encouragement, patient. He's very... Um, He's very willing to work with those that are just going to do things at a bit of a different speed. And so we have two very distinct personalities. And as I'm looking through how this passage is typically interpreted, um, it brought to mind actually one of our ministries here that uh, Sarah has been a big part of, and that is our place ministries, which is designed to help you understand how God has wired you up to, uh, to serve and to be served in the church. And, and the P in place stands for personality. And so I put this chart that we usually work through on the screen. And I think if, you know, Paul and Barnabas have been dead for a while, so they can't take the assessment. But if I had to guess, I would say that Paul, so you can see how, the, how it works. On the far left side of the graph, these are more task-oriented people, people that get things done. And then on the far, that, that's in comparison to a little more people-oriented and then up above, you have outgoing. Sometimes we might call that extroverted. And then below, you have reserved, more introverted. And I would have to say that D kind of seems to describe the Apostle Paul rather well. Dominant. He's a results-oriented guy. He, I mean, if you can take the gospel all over the Roman world in what remains in your lifetime without the use of car and like motorized transportation, you're a driven person. And, and I think that that describes Paul well. And then if I had to guess, I'd drop Barnabas in more of the S-type category. 
a little more patient, a little more... Um, uh, they, they look at people and, and they're, they're very empathetic. And they're, they're, they're willing to go for a long time, waiting for you to kind of catch up to speed. And I don't know, maybe this is a helpful way of looking at the text. But... Like, we've just described a whole bunch of stuff that we're reading into the text. Like, I haven't actually described anything that Luke actually wrote down. It's very easy for us to project certain things on characters in Scripture and to read into what's in their heads as they are making these, what would be a practical ministry decision. Hey, John Mark, you can't come. But I'm still left wondering if Paul did the right thing by not letting him come. Because after all, Paul, he wrote this in the book of Galatians. He said, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, and bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, Paul, did you do that with John Mark? Just tell him to stay home. Paul, didn't you also write in Ephesians, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Did, did you offer that kind of patience to John Mark? He said, no, you can't come. And Paul, didn't you write in Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul saying one thing and doing another. I don't want to let him off the hook, but I do want to put that question aside for a second because I think it's important that we investigate what it is that Luke actually wants us to grasp from these short five verses. And I think that there's more, but this morning I want to focus on three fundamental principles that I can pull just from the text. Without reading too much into it, just pull it from the text. And the first one is that the mission of God requires ongoing discipleship. You might ask why I'm, why I'm calling it the mission of God instead of the mission of Paul, the mission of Barnabas. I, I think we can get caught up looking at things from Paul's perspective or from Barnabas' perspective a little too much, and I wonder if we need to first get into Luke's head and understand what he might be saying about God's perspective of this. And this passage opens with this line. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. The mission of God is much more than evangelism and church planning. It's ongoing discipleship. It's shepherding. It's growing people into maturity. And when Paul and Barnabas, they, they plant these churches in Asia Minor in Acts 13 and 14, now at the end of 15, Paul says, we need to go back and check on them. Paul's a big fan of going. He, he's done that. We see him gather often. He preaches sometimes so long people fall out of windows. And now it seems like he's got a, a very deep interest in growing. He, he deeply loves churches. 
He has a deep passion for the flocks that he has, in a sense, created as the Spirit has led him all over the Roman world. And remember, in Acts 15, the council had written a letter declaring that the Gentiles were allowed into the church, would be a part of the plan of salvation, and they, that, that letter needed to be distributed out among the Gentile churches. And I think that Paul wants to get that letter out there. I think he wants to go visit them and say, hey guys, I talked to James and to the guys in Jerusalem. This is beautiful news. Here's what they wrote to you. And I think he wanted to care for the flock. He wanted to train elders. He wants to go and preach. We see this throughout his letters in the New Testament. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. For what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. You see, Paul does not just want to plant churches. He wants to take Barnabas and go check on them so that they can grow from children into mature adults, from children into those who are mature in the faith. Because children are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes, such as the Galatian controversy, such as the Judaizers saying that, I know you're Gentiles, but, and this Jesus thing is awesome, but you also have to observe the festivals. You also have to observe the feasts. You also need to be circumcised. And Paul, Paul would call that human cunning. And in Jerusalem, they ruled that that is not in any way a requirement for the Gentile churches. Paul wants them to grow from children into maturity. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You can see this deep passion to go care for the churches. In 2 Timothy 3, he is writing to one of his disciples. He says, As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then he tells him how to do this, okay? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Hey, Barnabas, let's go. What are we going to do out there, Paul? Well, we're going to teach, we're going to reprove, we're going to correct, and we're going to train people in righteousness. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. That man, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. He said in Colossians 1, Him we proclaim, Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Hey, Barnabas, let's go. Where are we going? We're going to go help everyone grow into maturity. And for this I toil, for this I labor, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Ongoing discipleship is an essential component of the church's life. In fact, it shapes so many of our ministries, even here at Sunnybrook, from the little bitties all the way up to those of us who are much older, I've been blown away by how effective um, these little passports have been. If you guys have kids, 
um, in, in any of these ministries, you'd know that they have these little books that they, they work through them with their families, with their mom and dad at home. And, and my kids, six and four, have grown in their understanding of the scripture because of this discipleship resource that comes home with us every week. They've grown in their, their knowledge of who God is, and I see it taking root in children. And I'm trying to help them grow into maturity. This is what men's and women's encounter are for, and school of discipleship. Those are not evangelistic events. They're discipleship resources. We, we deeply want the churches to grow in maturity, to spend time away reflecting on who God is and who we are in our relationship with him and to come back and to study who he is together so that we could be transformed into greater degrees of Christ's likeness. This is what Sunday school classes are for. This is what the school of theology is for. This is what your life groups are for or Wednesday night small groups. I am, um, for about the last six months, I meet every Monday morning about four or five guys at Old School Bagel. And uh, usually we have some theological question on the table, mostly because Anthony Butler's there. Um, and so we have a little bit of a, little, a debate, a discussion, or we talk about current events, or we'll even just talk about a text. And a few weeks ago, um, one of the guys brought up this question. He said, I wonder if what we do on Sunday mornings is really all that effective. And I'm not offended by that. I said... Do tell. I would like to know what, what you're concerned with. And he said, well, it just seems like a monologue with one person talking at four to 500 people, and it's, it feels like it, it is ill-equipped to do what it's designed to do. And I needed the question to be answered. Hey, what, what is it designed to do? Well, you know, it's to disciple people into maturity. And I said, I, I don't think that that's... Sure, it's, it's a small component of that. Like... Eating one apple is a small component of an overall health regimen, but this cannot be the only avenue of discipleship for anybody in this room. Jim likes to describe a good sermon um, as being akin to a good meal. You enjoy it, it nourishes you at some level, but in four to five hours, you're going to need something else. It has a limit, and you don't remember every single meal, like it changed your life that you had that burger, but at some level... And I asked, I said, okay, let's, let's stop, let's skip the generalities, let's talk, give me, give me an actual name of someone who's not growing, and I won't tell you what the name was, but I said, uh, yeah, I think I agree with you, I don't think that person's really growing, at least I've, I've not seen much fruit. I said, what do you think the problem is? So I think that the Sunday morning format is the problem. I said, um, could the problem maybe be that the Sunday morning format is all they have? Are they in a life group? Well, no. Um, would they get out of bed at six in the morning to come have bagels with us and talk theology? Probably not. That's not something that interests them. Okay. So what burden are we putting on this style of teaching? I, I believe it is essential that we grasp that the mission of God requires, not suggests, requires ongoing discipleship. And that we have a wealth of resources available to us. We have a room full of people that would love to engage in the discipleship process with you if you do not have someone like that in your life. But it takes, like, a step in that direction. 
It takes a little, okay, Ryan, does everybody need to go do your bagel shop thing? No, no. I don't think everything is for everybody. I think everybody who knows and loves Jesus is called to do something. It's called to engage in the process of ongoing discipleship. You'll see why that matters here in a second as we get into a bit of the, dis- the, the debate or the dispute between Paul and Barnabas. Because the second principle I see bubble out of this text is that the mission of God requires or calls for situational discernment. Situational discernment. What do I mean? In verse 37 of Acts 15, it says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, who is Barnabas' cousin. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And then there arose a sharp disagreement so that they, Paul and Barnabas, separated from each other. Before we read anything into Paul's attitude towards Barnabas or John Mark or Barnabas taking his ball and going home, before we read any of that into the text, let's just admit that Luke says it matter-of-factly. He's not bringing in a lot of the stuff that we might want to import or assume. He just says it matter-of-factly. Like he did two chapters before when he described this event of John Mark abandoning the mission. It says in Acts 13, verse 13, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that is Cyprus, and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So, okay. John left them mid-mission trip here, mid-church planting adventure here. And then in Acts 15, Paul says, because of that, you can't come with us this time. So some of our initial reactions might be, Paul's not being fair. He's certainly not living up to the forgiving spirit he's described in his epistles. Or we say that Paul might be nursing a grudge against John Mark. Or maybe even Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas got sideways. We'll see that in Galatians 2 here in just a minute. Paul and Barnabas got sideways because of Peter's problem with the Gentiles. Is Paul still mad at Barnabas and therefore his cousin, who, by the way, abandoned them? Is Paul punishing John Mark? Again, none of that's in the text. And it's very tempting for us to read modern sentiment into an ancient story. Two years ago, a a very interesting book came out titled The Coddling of the American Mind. This book wanted to look at this rising trend of creating safe places on campus. Not tornado shelters, safe places where the way that I think cannot be questioned, where you cannot make me uncomfortable because you and I think differently about certain, uh, certain subjects. And uh, the, the author, Greg Lukanoff, he, he said he believes that slowly, although with increasing speed, we as a society are adopting some falsehoods and assuming they're true. And so he calls them the three untruths that are becoming uh, very apparent, particularly on college campuses. And you'll see how this connects to what we're doing here in just a second. But here's the first untruth. He said many people are starting to believe in the untruth of fragility. 
the untruth of fragility. This says that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, which is different than what we all know. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. How do muscles grow? You need to stress them so that they can become stronger. How do people become like self-sufficient, supporting people? They go through adversity. They figure out how to do it. And he says we're slowly adopting this idea that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Because we've actually gone from helicopter parents who like to hover over their children and when something goes wrong, they fix it real fast. He said we've transitioned from helicopter parents to lawnmower parents who are out front making sure that those problems never show up at all and just completely paving the way for their children to never have to do anything difficult or with a fear of failure or something that might actually take some thought or some stress or some energy or some effort. He says, this, this is radically shaping how um, particularly college students today are viewing the world. After the first service, I went out into the lobby and actually talked with um, a professor at OSU, and he said one of his uh, comments, one of his end-of-year, you know, student reviews is um, verbatim, your tests are too hard when I don't study. And I just thought, wow, that was, anonymously, of course, um, without being too caustic, I just thought, wow, that'd be a hard person to respect. I wish I could reply to the student reviews. I have one remedy, study. That's all you gotta do, study. It doesn't mean the test won't be like hard, it, it's test. <laughs> but he's saying, I'm seeing this on our campus. And these are, the, he's done his research on east and west coastal schools, particularly small private schools, where this idea is building up and it's being imported into the center of the United States, even into large universities like Oklahoma State. And he said, I'm seeing this play out. The second untruth is the untruth of emotional reasoning. Now, Lukanoff will go to great degrees in the book to say, emotions aren't bad. They just have very little ability to determine what is and isn't true. That doesn't make them bad. But you can't use them to make logical decisions very well. The idea is always trust your feelings. Well, if, imagine if, that, if, if I adopt that way of thinking and uh, I'm in a chemistry course with Professor White over here and I just don't agree with him. And I'm, if I voice that I don't agree with him and, and let him challenge me, that's going to make me feel bad. And so my emotions are the king here, and they, they, if I feel bad, he's mean. Or could I just be wrong? But if I, if I think this way, when I feel bad, he's mean. And when he's mean, I need a safe space. at an institution that's designed to stretch you and help you think in other ways. The third one, and this one is fascinating. The third one is the untruth of us versus them which says that life is a battle between good and evil people. And we use this, I mean, just think of the modern political landscape. We use this to say, if you and I do not agree, then you're against me. Like, can I just be against your idea without being against you? No, if you don't agree with me, you, like, we're not okay. There's no room for civil discourse anymore. There's, if you don't agree with me, we're not okay. I think that some of this stuff bleeds into how you and I can read the scriptures. 
and how Paul can suddenly look like a real bad guy for a decision that he made out on the mission field. Can you pull up the, uh, the next slide? Yeah, that right there. Can you see yourself on this chart? Like, can you maybe, many of you have probably even taken the assessment, so you even know what you are. I am equal parts, C and I, which is kind of weird to cross like that. And I usually describe it as, I work like a C, and I socialize like an I. I go in my office with the door closed, and I work really hard for like a burst of time, and I do not want to be interrupted, and I want to do it by myself. And then whenever I'm at a stopping point, I will come out in the hall and distract everybody else. That's kind of how I operate. I work like a C, I talk to people like an I. Now, you know, when we do the assessment, like a number is assigned to all of these, I have one S. I'm not, I'm not S at all. If I think like this, if I think in this us versus them stuff, I can get really frustrated with those who are what I would view as overly compassionate. Or an S might have a hard time if they have an us versus them mentality of dealing with more of a CEO type, like a D type personality. But the coddling of the American mind cautions us against seeing the world in such black and white ways, like you're either with me or against me. And we need to offer the same insights to our text as we're working through the scriptures because we need to understand what God might be saying through Luke's writing. And it would be a mistake to import our own emotional reasoning into the text that simply says what happened in a rather matter-of-fact way. And instead, put our emotional reasoning aside, look at how does Paul actually do ministry? What do the scriptures say about how he handled that situation? Well, first of all, it doesn't seem like disagreement was unfamiliar to Paul. And it doesn't even necessarily seem like it was a bad thing. In Galatians 2, he recounts, he says, when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Paul's telling the story of basically the, Gentile, the, the Galatian problem, the circumcision problem. Because Peter stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, drew back, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, which is Paul's standard every time, Conduct that is in step with the truth of the gospel. That is his standard. I said to Peter before them all, if you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter's no stranger to disagreement. And, or, and Paul is no stranger to disagreement. And Peter and Paul do a lot of ministry together. This is not the end of their relationship. This is just... a disagreement. And I think Paul is just exercising discernment. Hey man, what you're doing is not in line with the truth of the gospel. But it doesn't always have to be conflict. It's fascinating to see people take different sides on one issue and it's not even as though they're opposed to one another. Look in Acts 20. Paul is about to head back to Jerusalem and it's not safe there. There are lots of people in Jerusalem that would like to see Paul dead. And he says, he's, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus Paul and called the elders of the Ephesian church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time 
from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with, all, and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. There's that ongoing discipleship piece again. And teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of uh, repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit told Paul to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what will happen to me there, he says, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Again, Paul's standard is the gospel. But he says, guys, I know Jerusalem's dangerous, but I've got to go there. The Spirit is compelling me. The Spirit told me to go. Okay? Hold that on one side. The very next chapter. And when we, Luke and Paul, had parted from them and set sail. We came by a straight course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the side, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. They're getting closer to Jerusalem. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples at Tyre, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, the disciples at Tyre were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Which is it? Spirit told Paul to go to Jerusalem. Spirit told the disciples, hey, don't let Paul go to Jerusalem. Luke hardly even pauses. He just continues. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. Paul said, I'm going. I don't think the Spirit is saying contradictory things. I think the Spirit just moves in different ways on different people, and I think the idea here is that discernment is key. The mission of God calls for situational discernment, and discernment is a spiritual form of wisdom. The mission of God seems to require that we constantly exercise such discernment with personnel decisions, or even if it means telling someone, hey, I just need to go to Jerusalem. I know it's dangerous. Or telling John Mark, you're going to sit this one out. It's discernment. If I went to Steve Broadway and said, hey, next week, I would like to play electric guitar on the worship team. Steve knows I don't have a musical bone in my body. But if we go by the Paul was mean to Barnabas and John Mark theory, Steve should at least give me a shot, Right? No, because Steve's a discerning person, he would say, no, you cannot get up there with a guitar. Well, Steve, can I run sound? Can I go up there and move all the knobs and switches? You don't know how to do it, and you're deaf. You'd be terrible at it. No, you can't do it. You, who knows how loud you would turn it up? No. Okay, that's a, that might be a silly example because both of those things are out of my element. It doesn't make sense, right? Why, why would you even want to do that? Let's go more in my element. Say that Paul Weiss, so we have St. Paul and we have St. Paul the Weiss. Paul Weiss and I are going to lead a trip to Mexico, lead a mission trip down to Piedras Negras. 
And Paul is going to handle all the, the labor stuff and get the, the team together and all of that and all the logistics. And he says, Ryan, here's what I want you to do. I need you to be responsible for the, day, the morning and the evening devos. And you need to preach a sermon while we're there. And, uh, and, and I just need you to kind of care for that side of the trip. It sounds good, Paul. Let's go. And we get down to Eagle Pass. And we're about to cross the border into Piedras Negras. And I get it in my head that, holy cow, there's like the cartel over there. I'm not going over there. And I freeze, and I say, Paul, I can't go. I'm leaving. And I spend way too much money on an Uber to get back home, and Paul takes everybody across the border. Say I did that. Two months later, we got another trip to Piedras coming up. Hey, Paul, can I help you lead this one? If it's a Paul is being mean to Barnabas and to John Mark situation, then Maybe he should say, yeah, everybody deserves a second chance. But really, if he's discerning, and he very much is, he would say, no. Remember what you did last time? You need to sit this one out and grow up a little bit. You, you abandoned us last time when we needed you. We were depending on you, and you, for whatever reason, got cold feet and left us. I still love you, Ryan, but no, you're not coming this time. You're sitting the bench. You need to go grow up a little bit. See, he's, he thought he had someone who was mature, but it turned out that I was more childish. And you don't take children to go do mature people's job. And so he said, you need to, you need to grow in your maturity. That, that is totally, that's what Paul's doing. He's not being mean. He's discerning the situation. John Mark, you need to go grow up. And we don't get any indication that they have a falling out or that Paul does not still love him and Barnabas. No, he can't come. Sorry, Barney. Can't come. Can't bring your cousin. But I wonder, this is not a bad thing. Because the mission of God, this is the third idea here, the mission of God has room for practical and contextual differences. Look at what happened. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Practically, the ministry of the Great Commission requires separation. It was good that they separated. Because now, instead of one mission going to Asia Minor, we have one in Cyprus and one in Asia Minor. And I think that that's a good thing. It requires separation. It's like the Spirit was doing this. Because the churches are strengthened. And by the way, if, if uh, we, we have a concern that maybe Paul was too harsh and Barnabas was right and they should have brought John Mark, just so you know, Barnabas is really not featured in the book of Acts anymore. It seems like the Spirit followed Paul around. Not to say that the Spirit withdrew from Barnabas, but the overwhelming evidence of Acts is that Paul was right. He made the right call. And it's important to remember that Paul and Barnabas did not divide over doctrine. It was a practical question. It was a personnel question. They didn't divide over doctrine. Sometimes we do need to divide because of Bad doctrine. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the castle door of Wittenberg, Germany. 
that's typically considered the, the moment that the Protestant Reformation was in full swing. There were things that happened before, many things that happened afterwards. It wasn't quite so quick, but that's kind of the date that a lot of people like to use. And that was, it caused a division that he wasn't trying to cause, but it caused a division that was probably necessary for the doctrinal uh, purity of the church. Even our own movement is colored by this, the restoration movement. In the late 1800s, the Churches of Christ broke away from the Christian church and, and because of doctrinal issues. And then in the early 1900s, in the 1920s actually, the, what would become known as the independent Christian church broke away from what would become known as the Disciples of Christ over theological liberalism seeping into the church. And a, and a view of Scripture that no longer held to the, the divinity of Christ, the, the truthfulness of the resurrection, and the authority of the Scriptures. And, and you and I are in a church that holds to those things very deeply because of division. So sometimes it's important. But sometimes it's just separation that's good. And unity is maintained. I'm very grateful to the Lord that He called an organization called ProM to go plant churches in Poland, and I was delighted to separate from Mac and Olivia and send them to go do that work. I thank God that He established the mustard seed planting church planting network in Japan, and it was a great joyful day to separate from the Martins and send them to go do that work. Separation is necessary for us to fulfill the Great Commission. We can't all just funnel into one spot. That's called the Tower of Babel. Didn't work. We need to take the message out. And so separation is normal. At one point, there was some separation that, that kind of formed denominations. And we have good churches in town like Eagle Heights or Grace Presbyterian, a number of others that are separate from us but are unified with us. And they're doing their work over there. Consider Eagle Heights, Cyprus. Consider Grace Presbyterian, Galatia Minor. And we'll take Alexandria. The church needs to work itself in all these Separation is good. Separation is good. So I don't, I don't think that Paul was wrong. I think he was just exercising discernment. And it's important to realize that his chief concern all along, throughout all of his epistles, is the mission of God. The mission of God. In his final letter, written shortly before his execution, he instructs one of his young disciples, Timothy, to continue strengthening the churches. Back to the discipleship piece. He says in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And that calls for perhaps division, not separation. Because having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, however, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, 
and the time of my departure has come. He knew the end was near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And I love how he concludes. He says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Paul was used to being deserted. He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. It seems that Mark grew up. Hey, Barnabas, let's go strengthen the churches. Can I bring my cousin John Mark? No. Too immature. And knowing that he'll soon lose his head when the Roman government executes him, one of the last things Paul writes is, get Mark. Bring him to me. He's so useful to me. In light of the three principles that the mission of God requires, ongoing discipleship calls for situational discernment and has room for practical and contextual differences, I just want to give you guys three questions from all over. One, have you considered God's desire to grow you into maturity? It is not an optional thing. It's part and parcel of the Christian life. And if so, what are you doing about that? Are you content with being a mere convert? Though I'm not sure such a thing exists. Or do you hunger for greater degrees of Christ-likeness? holiness and righteousness, kind of a get out of bed for holiness sake type relationship. Two, have you considered who can help strengthen you? Who are those people in your life? This won't suffice. Just a burger. It won't keep you full until the end. But as you partner with people in this mutual pursuit of Christ and his, and his righteousness, have you considered how to discern the quality of those you've trusted to lead you closer to Jesus? Not everybody is equally qualified to help. And sometimes it is, hey, you sit this one out so you grow up a little bit. God's mission among us is to glorify himself through the work of redeeming people and restoring his creation. And he is sovereign to complete his plan for his creation, even when you and I get sideways sometimes. We still use that. We still need missionaries in Galatia and Cyprus. On certain things we may not disagree, the reality of the resurrection or the divinity of Christ, those are, those are division questions. But if we share the same gospel, but do so in different mission fields which require different skill sets or different personalities, then we can unite in our pursuit to declare with Jesus the words of Jesus that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So let us hold firm to unity around the most essential doctrines. Remain charitable on issues of situational or contextual differences. Press one another toward maturity and trust God to achieve his plan to have his saving name declared across the world.
And if Paul Weiss needs me to sit the bench for a little while, that's okay. Because the lost souls of Piedras Negras, Mexico, are worth far more than my hurt feelings. God is much bigger. That in mind, we are now going to sing to this great, big God. And as we do, we will worship in song and in sacrament. And as you, are, as you feel led over the next three songs, come up and enjoy a good meal. And uh, this won't last forever. We'll do it again next week. That just seems to be how this stuff works. So stand and uh, let's worship and commune well.